Hey everyone, welcome to LSAT Demon Daily. My name is Ala. I'm joined by the wonderful Francesca today. We're both teachers at LSAT Demon, which you can find at lsatdemon.com. So today we wanted to do an episode for ESL students. We ourselves have some connection with the ESL world. Let's just uh, start talking about it. Francesca, why did we want to do this episode? What do you think um, are some of the things that we want to cover today? Yeah, absolutely. So hi, everybody. Um, we wanted to do this episode because we have a lot of people in our demon community who are ESL or who just kind of struggle with English in general. We get a lot of questions about this, and we thought it'd be helpful to try to answer some of those questions. So talk about some ways that you can overcome some of the challenges that you might be facing as an ESL student, but also talk about some of the benefits that can come from being an ESL student. And we don't often hear about those. We don't talk about them very much. So it might be helpful to highlight those. And we also wanted to share, you know, our own experiences with um, not having English as our first language. So Ala, why don't you go first? What's your ESL journey been like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my So I moved here to the United States when I was about seven or eight. Um, and up until then, my sort of exposure to the English world was very minimal. Um, you know, I was like reading and sort of tr- learning to write um, in school back in India, but it wasn't, it wasn't consistent and I was not able to comprehend English at all. And I was in ESL classes um, through elementary school um, and and middle school. Um, and the other part of it is that I was pretty culturally isolated in um, Indian language speaking communities. So I wasn't exposed to like music or like a lot of TV shows. Um, if it was, it was like Disney Channel or like PBS, you know, like whatever was on. Um, and I struggled a lot in, in primary schooling. So all the way through, um, graduating from high school, particularly because I was like very, very, uh, bad at English. And I struggled with grammar. I struggled with lots of things, my reading level, my writing level, all of the above. Um, and that's why it's so much fun to teach the LSAT these days, because it feels like a real moment of pride for me. Um, and it's something I try to share with my students of like, there's, those barriers are not insurmountable. What about you, Francesca? What's your story? Yeah, so I I kind of joke that I'm like fake ESL, just in the sense that I haven't, I've been really lucky not to experience a lot of the barriers that come with English not being your first language, just because I was raised in a like English dominant community. I'm Canadian and yes, it's a bilingual country, but it is very, very much an English speaking country, especially if you're not in Quebec, which I wasn't. I grew up, my dad is Italian, my mom is French Canadian. So growing up at home, we only ever spoke uh, Italian and English, sorry, Italian and French. And I went to French school up until grade seven. So I guess that's middle school usually. And that was when I started studying English in school. But I did, you know, for like on sports teams was the main source where I'd, you know, speak English with people. Um, but French especially and also Italian were the dominant languages growing up. But the thing is that grade seven is still young enough that, you know, you start studying English at that age, especially when you've been speaking it conversationally through sports and activities um, that you can pick it up fairly easily. And, you know, the French and Italian, they're, it's not that they're necessarily that similar with English, but just in how Canada is set up, like it's, it's very 
it was always both. And that's kind of the, the, the water that I always swam in. So there wasn't, I don't remember there being too difficult of a transition there. Um, but I definitely feel that I've experienced firsthand a lot of the benefits that come with being multilingual and we'll get into those more later, but all I know you also speak a ton of languages. Why don't you tell the <laughs> listeners what languages you speak? It's pretty sick. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and I, I do want to also highlight like the reason that we're sharing, like what our experiences are is because one of the caveats of this episode is we understand that there's tons and tons of students that are studying for the LSAT right now that don't have the privilege that Francesca yeah. and I have of, yeah. of being able to have started learning English young. So we're not trying to say that everyone's the same. I think there's a gradient, um, of ESL students and we wanted to place ourselves appropriately on the gradient. Um, but we still think that some of the points that we're gonna hit are gonna be useful regardless of where you are on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. To answer your question, so I grew up uh, speaking Telugu and then I am um, also conversational in Hindi as well, which is the national language in India. And then I um, picked up uh, Chinese as my foreign language through middle school, high school, and, and a little bit of college. So that's one of the benefits that we're gonna talk about down the line. But we also wanted to hit some of the barriers first and talk through like, an, you know, understand and sort of acknowledge the things that we are facing and get specific about them. Because sometimes it's it's easy to say it's a disadvantage and then move on. But being specific about those disadvantages can help us um, hitch some of those solutions onto them. So, Francesca, what do you think are the sort of barriers and the the unique sort of problems that ESL students might face? Right. Well, we, of course, off the bat, one of the big ones is just that there are going to be words that you don't recognize. You might be perfectly conversational in English, but there might be words that other people have learned through, you know, through culture, through social things like, if, for example, idioms come to mind idioms being those expressions, like the ways that people use language besides just the literal meanings of words, that can be a huge challenge for people. And again, talking about the spectrum of being ESL, there's also, it might not just be the second meanings of words that you struggle with. It might even be the literal meanings of words that you struggle with and having a more limited vocabulary than somebody who's been expressing themselves in English for their whole lives. And into this the second meaning side of things we can talk about how there is a lot of the time there's like a an emotional quality to the words that we use um there's when we think about like tone questions for example we see that happening the strength of words but even things like you know humor sense of humor can be difficult to convey in your non-dominant language or like personality now those aren't as big on the lsat like you don't need to make the lsat laugh but you do need to be able to pick up on how strongly the author feels about things like that. So we did want to validate the fact that our reading comprehension, for example, might be more challenging because it involves more of understanding what the author is trying to communicate as opposed to just reading the literal meaning of rules, like for example, in games. Yeah. And I, I told, I love that you said that, like that cultural sort of like everyday natural human aspect of language um, can be very difficult to grasp in your non-dominant language because it isn't something that you grew up with as, as a young child where you were like watching people interact and understanding how those phrases all fit together. And American English particularly can be really challenging, right? Mm -hmm. Like the the nuances in, in certain idioms or 
the way that words interact with each other, like I don't, sometimes I just don't understand them at all. They make no sense to me. Um, and even, even still like years after, um, immersing myself in the, in the English world, um, that's really difficult. And one of the things that I try to bring up, and I actually brought this up in my, um, in the most more recent, um, uh, reading club episode that I did with Beth, one of our other wonderful teachers, which is that when you're an ESL student, um, when, when English is not your first language, one of the natural things that happens is that it's a zero sum game when you're learning a language or when you're spending your time in a language, when you spend your time in multiple languages, you are by definition spending less time in, in each of those individual languages. Therefore you have fewer like mind map connections with words, with phrases, with idioms. So if for instance, like there's a word like accountability, I might have far fewer connections with the word accountability because I've spoken English for less time than most native English speakers have. So they may have heard it on a TV show. They may have heard their parents use it. They may have heard their friends use it. They have seen it in so many different instances that they can be very precise about what that word means. If I, as a non-native speaker have only used it maybe half as much or even like 30% as much, I'm going to struggle to pinpoint exactly what that means, particularly because words have multiple meanings that change based on context. And, and all that essentially becomes a barrier for ESL students because they're not able to be as precise sometimes, and they're not able to connect with a word as immediately because they don't have as many memories emotions and thoughts associated with those words and with those phrases. Yeah. And actually when we were, when you brought up this idea that I heard on the episode with Beth and also when we were talking about it beforehand, it felt really affirming to hear you talk about this idea of the mental maps of words. Cause I, there's also, you know, the related idea that we, when we speak to multiple languages, it's often that there are different areas of our lives that we spend speaking different languages. So for example, you know, your professional life, if let's say that you're ESL, you've been in the workforce in an English speaking country for a long time. Now, maybe your professional life has been mostly spent speaking in English. So a word like even the accountability example, that's you hear that a lot in like HR. And like, if you were working at a company, that's something that would come up. But then for example, I would struggle to talk about the idea of accountability or like corporate responsibility or something like that in French, even though that's the language I grew up with, because around the dinner yeah. table, we weren't talking about, we weren't using that language. We weren't using those words. Right? Yeah. So yeah, no, that, that's so interesting. <laughs> Geeking out. Yeah. I'm so here. glad you feel that way. I'm so glad you feel that way. I, I, somebody, I don't even, I don't know if I thought about it myself as, you know, stumbling through the English world life. Um, or if it, if it came from something else, but the first time I figured it out, I was like, wait, I'm beating myself up for not understanding English or for not picking up an American phrase or just going through life. Um, and until like relatively recent in my life, I wasn't even culturally immersed into like American English life. Um, and I used to like be, beat myself up for not getting references, for not understanding a conversation that was going on. It would go straight over my head. Um, and I used to feel bad and now I feel, I feel less bad because, you know, most of those people can't speak the languages I speak or understand them in the same way, which is why you have to look at it in that, like the emotional way that you were talking about, or, um, or just about how you have a certain language set in one way, but not in another way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
And I was talking earlier about reading comprehension maybe being more of a struggle for people whose dominant language is not English. And I wanted to come back to that really quickly because I, I think that there's an opportunity to maybe have a mindset shift around this one. I bring that up to really validate the fact that reading comprehension is probably more challenging if reading in English is not your strength compared to reading a different language, or if you struggle with reading in general, right? That is a absolutely normal and valid way to feel about this. And you're definitely facing as an ESL student challenges that other people, myself included, have not had to deal with. That's not to say that you can't work on it. So I don't, we're not bringing this up to disempower you and say, well, yeah, you should just throw in the towel because you're at a disadvantage here. Yes, you are at a disadvantage, but with extra work, with extra precision, you can overcome that. It's not to say it's going to be easy, but we'll talk about this more later. But these are these are things that you're going to have to overcome if you want to be on a level playing field with others in an English dominant field in an English dominant area. I mean, if you're taking the LSAT, you're probably thinking of applying to schools in the U.S. You're probably thinking of practicing law in the States. And this is something that like English, the English language is going to be something that you are going to be best able to do your job if you can master it. And the sooner you can do that, the easier it'll be down the road, right? So if you can reframe this challenge that you're facing now on reading comp, on the LSAT in general, as an opportunity to build a skill that's going to be really important for your whole career, that can help you get a broader perspective on what we're working on here. I love that you said that, Francesca, because, you know, you and I talk about this in our classes all the time, which is this is preparation for law school. And we say this to all students all the time, which is, Treat this as your zero L year, the logic you're learning, the extra vocabulary you're adding on, whether or not you're an ESL student. This is preparation for law school. And we have heard from tons and tons of actual law school students who have told us that their LSAT prep has actually helped them feel better and do better in their one L year. And there, this, this is no different if you're an ESL student. This and we And you should be looking at it exactly the way Francesca's talking about it, which is as a benefit that stretches out into law school and through law school and all the way out once you know you're looking for a job um, presumably in an english speaking world absolutely well speaking of those benefits you know this we're saying this is not something that we talk about a lot but what do yeah. you see and in, in what you've experienced and what you see in your students what are some of the benefits of having multiple languages pinging around your brain all the time <laughs> yeah, that's a that's one of the things that we definitely both wanted to hit in this episode. And we think it's really important to bring those to the top of mind because they can help this hurt a little bit less or help this feel like it's an attack on you because it's not right. This is these are the cards that we've been dealt. These are the these are the the paths that we're navigating. It's um and it feels good to own that, but it feels it's harder to own that when you're only looking at I am not a non, I'm not a native speaker of English. So this is harder for me, but there are lots of things that you can do that there's tons of LSAT students that can't do. Right. Yeah. So one of those is that your, um, your brain, like they've done some research on this, like your brain is fundamentally different. If you speak more than two languages, two or more languages, um, there are neurological benefits of speaking multiple languages. One analogy that I thought of to try to like drive home this point is the LSAT tests, I think the way Nathan puts it, three things, logic, how well you can understand and, and read English and how hard you can work. And 
the logic part of it, I think sometimes gets tied in with the English and particularly in ESL conversations. And I wanted to like decouple that a little bit. Logic is something that transcends language. We are going to have to use English in order to do the logic that the LSAT tests us on. That's just the truth of the, the world that we're in. But if I were to administer the LSAT to you in your native language, you would be dealing with the same logical skills that we're trying to teach you here at LSAT Demons, the same stuff, the same intuitive, common sense, logic stuff that we'd be teaching you. As a result, your problem isn't necessarily with the thinking part. It's not that you're stupid. You are all capable, wonderful people that can do this. It now comes down to, can you apply it in an English world? So think about yourself as, like most of you probably can drive, right? You can drive a car. You know how to do the logic of an LR question. But unlike native speakers of English, there's a storm around you while you're driving. You can't see as much. It might be a little bit harder to take turns. You might skid a little bit, right? There's more of, there are more, there are more trip ups and you have to try a little bit harder to be able to see through the noise that's in front of you. There are definitely solutions you can implement. But the fact that your brain is different, the fact that you have all of these um, benefits that kick in from knowing and, and being a, a logical human being, that's going to be there regardless of whether or not the test is being administered in English. And you should find comfort in the fact that this is a test of common sense of, of logic and separately English as well. And that's a different battle sometimes to handle than to say, oh, I don't understand English, therefore I'm a stupid person that can't like process logic. It's a bit of a nuanced point. I don't know if I'm getting that across fully, but. No, I, um, I think you are. And I think something that comes up, like to, to give an LSAT example to that, it might be that it's not that you're not capable of understanding that there's, uh, you know, a difference between something that has to be true and something that proves the conclusion. So between a necessary and a sufficient assumption, it's not that you can't understand that or like an, you know, a, a logical flaw is a flaw, whatever language you make it in, right? Like if you're attacking yeah. the person instead of attacking the argument, doesn't matter what language you communicate that in, it's still the same flaw. You can be perfectly yeah. capable of understanding that idea, but then maybe when you see an answer choice that says like presuppose, and you just don't know that presuppose is kind of just like another way of saying assumes before they actually say it. Right. Like you're understanding the ideas, but it's the language is kind of getting in the way, kind of like even native English speakers, we're dealing yeah. with a degree of English that you're not used to in your day-to-day -day life. And I always say this in my RC classes, but it's not the ideas on the test that are hard to understand. Like you're capable of understanding that like this one star burns hotter than this other star or whatever it is. It's just the way that it's phrased and the language that's being used, whether it's like explicitly the English language or whether it's just a level of English that's hard to deal with. That's the hard part. Oh, that's really, that's a really good way to put it. It's like, yeah. there's there's nothing wrong with you, right? It's just about how much work you can put in if you can go through the rounds of processing you need to go through in order to understand exactly what it is they are saying. Yeah, That's awesome. I really like that. Um, yeah, it can, it's like a more empowering way to think about it. It's separating, like, like you're saying, it's not that you're yeah. stupid. It's not that you can't get these ideas. It's just that there's an extra step to get to. There's You got to drive through the snow. Yeah, exactly. Um, another benefit that we wanted to highlight is that there's lots and lots of career prospect related benefits to being an ESL student. We need more of you guys in this profession, 
right? There are people, there are literally people counting on you to be able to speak Arabic, Farsi, Russian, whatever language you might speak. There are people counting on you to get into this field and to serve them because they, they need you in the courtroom or they need you in a firm or they need you in a public interest job. They're looking for you um, to help them out. And we need more of you guys there. And you don't have to do an extra, you don't have to go to community college classes to learn a foreign language. You already know one. And that's a huge benefit, especially in certain careers, like certain specific sectors of the of the legal world. Um, and there's people depending on you to come into this area of work. So you may not see the benefits like shining out at you directly when you're taking LSAT sections, and we don't blame you for that. But know that there there are benefits down the line, and you shouldn't forget about them. They are invaluable, and there's there they are things that you know other native speakers of English um, are often you know disappointed. There's friends I have that have grown up um, having parents that could have taught them another language and then didn't. Um, maybe they would have had a different sort of outcome with the, with the LSAT, and it, maybe it's harder if you had been taught another language, but. There's lots of people that feel sad about the fact that they couldn't, you know, connect back with a culture or with another language because they weren't taught it. And there are those career future benefits to being an ESL student. Yeah, absolutely. Having multiple languages is such a superpower. It's such a strength. And I know yes. that it's very easy for me to say as a person who's now English is now my dominant language, but your English can continue to improve as you work at it. And of course, like you run the risk of losing your languages your native languages if you don't practice them, but it's going to be a lot easier to keep them going. And now you can stay in touch with that side of yourself and those roots that you have with those cultures, as opposed to trying to learn them now as an adult. So it's, it's a very valuable thing to have. Um, and that actually brings me to the, the other benefit that we wanted to talk about, which was even like, when you think about the English language, you know, English comes from somewhere. It has roots in other languages. And a lot of the time, you know, we're mostly talking about like Greek and Latin, but if your dominant language happens to be a romantic language, like, you know, Italian, French, Spanish, Portuguese, things like that, you're going to have actually an added benefit, not just in general to like have multiple languages and these like sort of abstract benefits, but you'll have a specific advantage on the test because when you have an unfamiliar word and you don't have this ability to Google it, you have multiple languages now that you can draw on to say, well, is there a word that this sounds like? Does this remind yeah. me of any word that I recognize or is just part of it. Like, does the root of this word have something else that makes me think of it? Like when you, even I don't have the perfect example off the top of my head, but I was talking before about the word presupposes mm -hmm. the, the suppose part. You're like, okay, well, I suppose that's true. That's, that's an English word that sounds familiar to me. Okay. But even the pre like this, the I suffix, I don't know what exactly I'm not a I think it's etymologist. A prefix. prefix. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, even even just the, the part of the word that says pre, if you can think to all of the languages or all the words in the languages that you know that start with pre meaning something else, it's like, oh, well, pre seems to mean before, right? It's something mm -hmm. that comes before something else. So presuppose it's just something that you're supposing before saying it or before you're supposed to, something like that. The, the etymology side of language, like even if you're not an etymology nerd, which I definitely am not, it can still be a benefit to read a word and go, hey, actually, that sounds like something that I know in my native language. I'm actually a, not not I wouldn't call myself an etymology nerd, but I've depended on etymology a lot to get through um, get through English and to get better at English. 
Um, my dad's actually one of the people that introduced it to me and mm -hmm. it helped me a lot to know that this isn't just stuff that's like thrown out into the universe at random, that there is a crazy system, but a system that, you know, ties English together. And there are like phrases that come from other phrases. Um, like I was learning about the word, the, the root word for like host. I think there was, there was an article in like New York times about like where that word comes from in like Greek. Um, and, and that was such a fascinating story. And like l knowing the connections between words actually helps me and definitely helped me in my actual LSAT studying. Yeah. Um, and these, you know, benefits that we're talking about that come from being an ESL student, we don't want you all to forget them. And we want you all to like, you know, know that they're, that they're there in your LSAT studying when it comes to literally the shape of your brain and how your brain works, but all the way through into the future careers, um, and the wonderful careers that I know you will all have. So let's shift over to some solutions, Francesca. Um, I know we wanted to talk about real things that worked for us and that, uh, and other things that we try to recommend to our students. Yeah, absolutely. I'm kind of coming at it more from the side of, because like I was saying, I haven't faced a lot of these barriers myself, but I have helped other students through these barriers. Like we said, we get these questions all the time. Some yeah. um, I've gotten recommendations on the vocabulary app that you can download and it'll help you like learn new words as you go through it. That might be a helpful thing. I haven't used it myself, but I've heard good things about it. But even just this idea of broadening your vocabulary just getting into the habit and getting into the practice of whenever you come across a word that you don't know what it means, look it up. And I'm not saying do that like on a section, because obviously on the test itself, you don't have the opportunity to look up words, but you get to the end of the section or you get to the end of the question. And while you're reviewing, you go, let me learn what that word means. Maybe you like write down a log of like new words that you're learning. Even if you don't have to do that, like even just to get in the practice of going, I don't know what this is. Let me look it up. That can be super helpful. Also, you know, back to this, we were talking about dealing with words that you don't recognize in a passage. There's that idea of looking into the word. So going deeper into the word itself and seeing if there's something yeah. else that you recognize that you can work with. You can also zoom out, look at the broader context and be like, okay, let's imagine that this sentence didn't have this word in it. What could I still figure out about what the author's trying to communicate to me just from the broader sentence itself? I like that you said that one of the things I'm thinking about, particularly with vocabulary is bouncing back to that idea of ESL students by definition, don't have as many connections to English words because they haven't spent as much time in English. I am somebody that hates flashcards. I don't think flashcards are helpful. I don't think like a word and a definition will ever teach me as much as can I apply this word in a sentence? Mm -hmm. um, one of the, my mom is also an ESL speaker and, you know, obviously has um, far fewer benefits and privileges um, that come from being ESL. And she loved the show Downton Abbey. That was one of the recommendations I gave her um, for getting better at English because it's like, first, it's like really traditional. The drama's awesome and they speak slowly, they enunciate, and they use a lot of new words and a lot of really interesting words. So one of the best ways that you can drill new vocabulary into your life is challenge, pick one word for a week and use it a couple of times in different conversations. Like see, find natural ways to create those real like neural connections, those memories, those emotions, and associate them with words so you can remember like pedagogy was a word that like, I never, like, I never understood what that meant. And then I 
challenged myself one week. I was like, I'm going to try to slip this naturally into conversation. I'm going to look cool. And I'm going to learn what this world, what this world word means, because it didn't connect to other like etymology words that, you know, that I knew and had no associations. And now I know what pedagogy means because I spent the time to make memories. That's obviously a little bit exhausting. It does have like work associated with it. But I think once you create new memories with words, it's very hard to forget them. And it's and it's the antidote to the fact that you have a less built out math when it comes to English. Um, a challenge that you can do with yourself is sort of transform your life to have English be the dominant practice. If there are, if there are people in your life that have you know enough English um, speaking capabilities to interact with you, ask them to shift over from another language to English. Yeah. Spend time listening to podcasts, spend time watching movies, TV shows, make new friends that you can speak um, English with, all of yeah. which will force your brain to continue to keep making those associations and you'll struggle and you'll make mistakes and it'll, it may not always feel good, but you will be on the path to surrounding yourself with that mind map that's more built out. Yeah. Immersion is absolutely the way to go. And it can be really challenging when you are able to communicate better in a different language. Cause at the end of the day, a, a big thing that we want just as human beings is to be able to be heard and understood. And it yeah. is challenging to talk in a different language when you don't feel like you can get your points across and get yourself. Like, I know, you know, exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. Um, that emotional thing is so real. Like I didn't realize how poor my emotional communication in English was until I started having friends and like relationships that were in English. And I was like, wow, all I can say right now is that I feel bad. And I don't even, I have no other like synonyms that I can use for bad. Like, am I anxious? Am I worried? Like I didn't have any of that language and I had to associate them with emotion. And it was, it was wild to go through that process. So we we do have an understanding of what that can feel like. And the solutions to that really come from that immersion and that being that vulnerability, yeah. I think. And that's the thing that scares people, right? Like is you have to be the person that isn't in a strong position. If you're having a conversation in English and it's not your native language, it does not feel good. It doesn't feel um, secure or safe. So exercise the discomfort that you can like figure out where your boundaries are like, you know, you don't have to take up public speaking in a comedy club. You don't have to do that. But like find ways to let yourself be vulnerable and a little uncomfortable because discomfort sort of goes hand in hand with learning. Yeah. And that's a that's something that we're always encouraging our students who come to classes to do, to put themselves yeah. out there and be vulnerable. And, I, uh, you know, it can be very vulnerable to put your ideas out there in a language that you're not as comfortable with. But it can also be really vulnerable to put your ideas out there in general when you're not certain yeah. that you have the right answer, or that your analysis is correct. But we're always yeah. saying, like, our classes are an excellent place to make mistakes and to get things yes. wrong, not only because everybody is super supportive and nice and is also on the their own learning journey, but also because we're there to help you. And yeah. I always tell my students that like, if you make a mistake while you're reading something out loud in class or talking through your analysis, I can actually be more helpful to you than if you just got it right. And I was like, that's awesome. Nice. And then you didn't right. get much out of that, right? I can help you more exactly. if you are able to be brave about the mistakes that you're making. 
And I don't, I've gotten so many messages and reviews of students saying that they love it when other people make mistakes, not in like a, an estado masochist way, just like, <laughs> just in a straight up, like being able to relate with the vulnerability yeah. and the, the idea that someone else is struggling and I'm not alone in this. Um, that's a good feeling to foster. I do want to bounce back though, to the, the solution that you were talking about, like what to do in the middle of a section where maybe it's your official test, maybe it's not, and you don't know a word. Um, I use about, I use like two different tests that kind of go hand in hand that can really help you out when you're looking at a word and you have no idea what it means. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things Francesca brought up is context. The way to, to bring that context in to help you out is I just replace that word with thing, something, some aspect. And then I read the whole sentence with the word thing or something in there. The reason that that helps me out is I'm forced to look at the context and not the word that I don't know. When I read that sentence with blah, 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 you know, thing. And then I'm like, okay, what Well, oh, you know, this sentence seems positive about this thing. Maybe this is a good aspect of what they're talking about. And that goes into the second test I use, which is if you don't know what a word means, let's just start with something really, really simple. Are they saying something good? or something bad or something neutral, right? And based on based on etymology or based on context, you can say, I think they're saying this is a bad thing, right? That's a place to start. That's something you can build on. And the next sentence might use a synonym that you do know, and then you're like, oh, that's what they mean. They're saying bad thing in this kind of way, both of which will force you to look at context and they'll allow you to not panic and go down a spiral because you're they're like, oh, I don't know this word. Therefore, I will just, you know, mess up this entire passage. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's going to be very helpful. And I think this also next to the idea that it takes time to get good at these things, right? To get comfortable yes. with all of these skills that we're talking about. And, you know, we always say that you should take your time with the LSAT to get your best possible score because success at the LSAT doesn't happen overnight, right? Plenty of us on the team can attest to that firsthand, but also it you don't learn a language overnight, right? And if you yeah. are, if English is not your dominant language, you are trying to do both at the same time, master this test and master this language. So first of all, have a little compassion for yourself, but yeah. also have patience with yourself because maybe other people are able to crush the test in a certain amount of time, but you're facing this extra barrier. And it doesn't mean that you can't get to the same place that they are, but it might take a bit more time. And that payoff is going to be really huge. We can't stress enough the value of, you know, staying greedy with the LSAT and really seeing what you can do with it. And it might take you a bit longer because you're also mastering a language. You got to have grace with yourself about that. I love that you said that. Um, one of the anecdotes I wanted to share with in the episode today is that when I was asking my professor for a letter of recommendation um, for law school, because we both applied back in September, um, one of the things I did was I sent um, I sent him a bunch of the essays that I wrote for him. And this was like five years ago, um, not actually uh, that much different from when I started studying for the test, because that was about four years ago. And I was looking through the essays, um, you know, just like stroll down memory lane mm -hmm. and my God, were they horrible. <laughs> so many mistakes, like Grammarly would just like, I think would just force quit on me if I had to run those <laughs> essays through. It was, it was, it was terrible. And, and then I thought specifically for this episode, imagine if I had forced myself to take the LSAT five years ago 
and put myself into a pressure both with English and with the LSAT and just said it had to be now. Yeah. I wouldn't have this score. I wouldn't have this outcome. There's no way. And recognize that it takes years. It took years for me to get up to this level um, and to be able to have this um, lexicon or this vocabulary in my toolbox. And so time is a huge aspect of this. And I love that Francesca said, you're doing two things. You're getting better at the LSAT, but you're also get, getting better at a language. And that can take that can take a long time. I'm still learning new things and new words yeah. today. Me too, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. And yeah, and you can't force it. You can't force any of this process to happen faster. There's we we hate faster. We want it to make sense for you. We want you to take the time it takes to get accurate. Yeah. And both of these things are going to be things that are going to pay dividends later in life. Mastering English and mastering the skills on the LSAT. This is not just a sprint to the finish of getting your LSAT score. This is a lifelong thing. Ella, do you have any other advice or insights that you want to share with ESL people out there dealing with this? No, we wanted to hit on some of these like broader aspects. We do want to ask you though, do you want a part two? Are there pointed questions that you have that you want us to address? Um, we would love to to create another pool of resources and advice for you um, yeah. as ESL students. The last thing I want to say is that I'm in awe of you and I'm really proud of the students that are working through these additional barriers. And it might be ESL, it might be culture, it could be socioeconomic, whatever else that you're facing as you study for the LSAT. Um, I love my students and they impress me every day and the, the consistency with which they show up. And I have particular undying respect for ESL students because that is not easy. Um, and that's why we wanted to create this resource. Um, give us a thumbs up if you like it. I feel like a really cool YouTuber when I say that. <laughs> um, any last thoughts, Francesca? No, I don't think so. I can't echo that enough. Keep at it, guys. You've got it. We believe so much. We believe in you. Exactly. Yeah, we believe <laughs> in you. There you go. There's my ESL coming out. We believe in you. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening today. Uh, if you email daily at lsatdemon.com, you can ask whatever questions you've got, share some LSAT or law school admissions news. Thanks for listening. 